0: Five Wednesdays in the month of March so we're going to get a good chunk of Hebrews done and we get to start with the passage in Hebrews which I can't tell you much about how's that we ended last week with chapter 6 verse 3 if you want to rush back and look at those first three verses that's it's helpful and he's saying or she's saying whoever wrote Hebrews is saying let's move on past, past the, the basics and we talked about how long you would end up being in first grade if you only went to school as often as you went to worship. Now, there are a lot of ways that that illustration falls down upon close examination. And one of them would be, what about your private study? What about your private reading? So add all that in as well. But sometime we need to move on. One of the things that churches have really struggled with is when to move on, or if to move on, and then to what do we move? Uh, and it's, it's been a real struggle. For example, some will, you know, let, we're gonna go right back to the New Testament and we're not gonna change anything and we're gonna stick right with it forever, forever, forever. And we're gonna use the same arguments we've always used. Even though they have not won over a sizable percentage of our population, perhaps even of our family, we're gonna keep those arguments because we're not moving on. And we'll sing songs about being you know, rooted and grounded in this. Others really seem to follow the headlines and whatever whoever's shouting the most in in media, and that's that's a problem. So what does it mean to move on? It means to move from the forms to the function. So who is a Christian? Is a Christian somebody who does certain things, or? Is a Christian somebody who follows Jesus and does whatever Jesus would be doing in that situation to the best of their interpretation of Jesus? Interesting question. But the writer is setting this up for us. And, and then verses four and forward remind me an awful lot of Second Peter. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace." Well, upon first reading, this is very, very troubling because this would indicate that if a Christian um, decides not to be a Christian anymore, that down the road, they're not allowed to repent. They're not allowed to come back. Well, th- it does read like that, but that's not what it says. It says it's impossible for them and then gives the reason. And probably the same as in Second Peter, but he's using grosser metaphors like dogs and vomit and pigs and mud. Um, it is because what are you going to offer them? They had the fellowship. They had the word of God, they had the joy, they had all of that, and they decided to trade that away for something else. Whatever that something else is, must be of great value to them. So what are you going to offer them now? You have nothing except the thing they rejected. That's probably where this writer and Peter, the writer of Second Peter, is, is meaning to go saying, if God's not good enough for you, we don't have anything else to offer you. I think about that sometimes whenever I, you know, Jesus turns to his disciples after some people left him and wouldn't follow him anymore. And he goes, are you gonna leave me too? And Peter goes, well, where would we go? And as I've said before in these series, um, it's rather like Mrs. Noah, uh, it just breaks my heart. We don't even know her name. Mrs. Noah getting fed up with the ark and the stinky animals and the pitching back and forth and the pitching into the pitch, the sticky walls, all that sort of thing. Looking at Noah and saying, right, that's it. I'm out of here. Where are you gonna go? The writer of Hebrews, remember their main focus and theme here is to get you to focus on Jesus. And there is nothing greater and nothing more wonderful than Jesus. He's more wonderful than the religions and churches we built around him. If you follow Jesus, and these people seem to have, you know, they've tasted the goodness, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. If he's not good enough for you, fair enough. But we have nothing else to offer you but Jesus. Can these people repent? You know, that was actually a live issue, especially the first two, three hundred years of the church. And here's why. We covered this, like we did the book of Revelation over a year ago. Um, if persecution comes and they come in and they say, right, you either bow to the emperor and you sacrifice to the emperor, or you can't work, we're going to kill your kids. We're gonna, They did all of that sort of thing. And so let's say we're gonna do um, a Bob and John here. And Bob, he bows down and he, because he, he doesn't want his family to die. He wants to be able to feed his family. He wants his job. He bows to Rome and walks away. Over here you got John. John decides, no, I must be faithful to Jesus. I will not, uh, will not speak against Jesus. I will not fail Jesus. And so they, they kill him and they make his family just slowly starve. Then later, a new emperor comes and they don't do that anymore. And so the surviving Christians are starting to build back up now and nurse their wounds. And here comes Bob running back going, hey, guys, I was only kidding. I really didn't want to do that, but I was really, really scared. So I'd like to be back now. And a lot of the Christians, understandably, were so hurt because if everybody had stood up, maybe something could have happened. Probably not, but maybe. And yet you didn't stand up. You went away. You prospered. Your kids are doing great. Minor in the ground. And now you want to just say sorry. Well, and of course, I'm being very surface there because Bob could have really deep regrets. The thing is, in the first couple of centuries, there were threads of Christianity that said, tough luck, Bob. You're never allowed back in. I think they were wrong. That said, I do not, I do not envy John having to do the job of forgiving Bob, uh, or accepting that Christ has forgiven Bob. So this is a real issue. What are we gonna do with those who've gone away and said, you know I've had to try not enough? Now I wanna warn you, some of you that are listening, we're not talking about you've tried church, or you've tried Church of Christ, Methodist, Roman, Catholic, Eastern, you've tried Jehovah's Witness, you've tried Mormon. And it just didn't work for you. And you really tried. You gave it all you had. I'm I'm not questioning that at all. Uh, I believe that you probably did give it all you had, but you gave it to a system, not to the Savior. It's not just a saying, it's a reality. I know in my life, I have been absolutely, rabidly dedicated and then found out only later that I was dedicated to something that was at best an approximation of walking with Christ. I was doing the best I could, and I'm sure that if I had died then, I'm sure all the people that were in the group, they would have gone to heaven, because God is not demanding perfection. I am saying, if you walk away from Jesus and say, Jesus is just not really what I'm looking for. That's when the problem hits. And so he's not saying, you can't forgive them later. He's just saying, you don't have any way to get them. Uh, If the Holy Spirit doesn't chase them, I'm not really sure what you can do. And then at the very last, that last bit of verse 6, they're crucifying Jesus again and subjecting God to disgrace. That happens when somebody leaves Christianity and then decides they're going to set up shop doing evil, or even actively attacking Christianity. It does bring God's name into disrepute. And throughout the Old Testament in particular, you will find really, they pay attention to God's reputation. They want God to have a good reputation. Even when God tells Moses, well, I'm fed up with these people, I'm gonna destroy them and raise up a new nation through you. Moses goes, no, 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 don't do that. Do not do that because Word of that's gonna get back to Egypt and they're gonna say, Wow, that God didn't save those people and he's not a reliable God and Moses was concerned about the lives of the Israelites, to the point where he said, If you kill them, kill me. But he was also concerned about God's reputation. Isn't that interesting? We need to live in such a way that we enhance God's reputation. Now that's a that's not always been our experience, is has it hasn't, you know, How many of us have suffered because of mistreatment by Christians? How many of us were treated better by unbelievers in business or school than we were by Christians? I think if we were in the same room right now, there'd be a a majority hands up. That's a real shame. It really is. Every youth minister knows whenever two of his youth start dating each other, oh no. Because sides will form relationship eventually usually will change, break, you know, calm down, cool. They'll separate and then the hurt feelings and then the parents and it's a real issue. Not sure how they handled that. I'm not a youth minister. God bless them. Um, they, they certainly helped my children and I know they're helping a lot of others. They're made of sterner stuff, I think, than I am. Now, this is a sermon, Hebrews. It's, It's not like a pastoral letter. It's one of the many reasons we know Paul didn't write it. But there's a little, it seems an abrupt break here. You know, the first part, first three verses <coughs> in chapter six said, you know, let's move on. Let's get tougher. Uh, let's, let's get to the meat. And then this section goes, and whatever the meat is, uh, you're not, we don't have anything else. This is what is on offer. Then, and he's setting up something, or she's setting up something. I don't want to have to do that every time. Please remember, there. Are, um, you know, my personal favorite, thinking of who wrote this would be Priscilla, just because I want it to be. Uh, she is in a running. Barnabas is in a running. Apollos is in the running. We don't know. All right. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. A lot of of stuff here, but very much like uh, the sower went forth to sow parable. We're the soil here. We're the land. And if you receive the blessings from God and then you produce a crop, then you will be blessed. But if you receive the blessings from God and you produce thorns and thistles, can we have a talk? May God save us from the self-righteous. May God save us from those that are like sandpaper uh, and like thorn bushes, that the closer you get to them, the more they're gonna hurt you. And very many of them decide they are doing so because they're just righteous and that people just need to be more righteous, i.e. more like them. And it's it's a crying shame. I think all of us have done that a few times in our life, but we're talking here about people, that's just what they do. God's grace falls on them and what do they produce? Thorns, they they produce thistles. It's awful stuff. So when God blesses you, bless in return. Can we talk about that? We used to sing a song called, must I go and empty handed? And then there was another song, will there be any stars in my crown? And there were a lot of uh, songs like that when I grew up, all about how dare we approach God without a whole bunch of converts And successes to show for him to show to him rather Uh, don't know no you can still sing those songs but have some mental reservation as our Catholic friends have a doctrine on mental reservation have some of that in your head that says listen I know this isn't exactly yet this is poetic license but it's not exactly reality because you have some people like Jeremiah who were super faithful to God and yet had not one single Accomplishment, and died somewhere mysteriously on the way to Egypt, where he told them not to take him. Or, what about Elijah? Elijah's pretty much my favorite character in the Old Testament, because he's he's like the old cowboy movie, uh, but he's a prophet instead of a cowboy. And yet, long-term results of Elijah's message, none. So. What if you're being blessed by Our Safe Harbor? You're being blessed by owning Bibles. You're, you've got Maybe you have a small group. Maybe you have a church which is loving. Maybe you're being, whatever it is, you know Jesus and you're being blessed. A lot of churches will say, well, then you just better start giving us some money. We need money. We, we have to have that. We ask for that, yes. But we, we don't do the guilt thing because a lot of you don't have it. We get it. We want to keep you. We love you. Well, what if you don't have money to give? You've tried to reach your neighbors for Jesus just by being nice to them or inviting them maybe to sit and watch videos with you or the like, and it, you've got nothing to show there for it. You're fine. You're fine. Take a deep breath. You're fine. As long as you follow Jesus, and I'm gonna say the best you can because nobody follows him the best you can, but you follow him, and you consistently want to be close to Christ, and you look at the fruits of the Spirit, let's say, as a measuring stick, and and you try to get close to them. Okay. Jesus doesn't ask you for perfection. He asks you for presence. Be with him. All right? So don't, don't let people guilt you or to make you feel like you are lesser than the missionary that talks about baptizing 3,000 people. do, Do what you do with what you've got for whatever purpose God needs it to be done with the people around you. That's it, you'll be all right. Even though we speak like this, verse nine, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. So, whomever this sermon or letter was originally targeted to, the writer's going, I think you're better than the ones I'm warning here. Things that accompany salvation. God's not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. Notice he didn't say, he will not forget your successes and accomplishments. He says your work and your love. There you are. That's enough. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. And see, that's a big deal. Show up for work every day. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Take heart in the fact that others are facing the same battles you are. If, even if it's a horrible battle, you've experienced a loss in your family, others have. You have cancer, others have that same cancer you're in the middle of a war zone. Others have been in the war zone. Now, this is not to diminish your pain and the absolute horror of your situation. This is to tell you, you are in a celestial, worldwide, throughout all time, community. So stay the course. Make your decisions between you and God and show up for work. That's That's 99% of life is just showing up, facing the right direction. And when you can, take a step. And that's what Hebrews here, there were people who believed that when the Messiah came back, then there'd be a kingdom. And so when Jesus ascended, they're looking for him to come right back. And now they're getting tired. Enthusiasm has waned. By the way, that's one of the great dangers of the people who run around talking about the last times and the prophecies and the last times, you wear people out and they lose their hope. Because again and again, you can look for 2000 years, people have been running the same thing. It's this, I see all the signs, it's this generation. And then it moves on. And what you don't see are the people dropping out of faith because they bought the prophecy books. They sent money to the TV prophets. They bought. They went to the end time seminar you had at your church, and nothing happened. We aren't worried about the end of time. We are just concerned about staying, staying as uh, he's standing up, facing forward, and showing up in our time. God will sort the rest. Now we're going to move into some really cool territory over the next couple of weeks. You ready? When Abraham made his promise to when God, sorry, (laughs) I got excited. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. You remember patiently, it was many decades. So once again, the writer of Hebrews is saying, stay the course, don't get tired, don't lose hope. I talked to Uh, a man in the Louisiana State Penitentiary recently, not Bobby, that a lot of you know. Uh, This man was a trustee and I was in a room kind of sequestered for about an hour before I was allowed then to enter into uh, death row. And there was a trustee there and he got me a bottle of water. Just a look on his face, I started talking to him. And he talked to me about being on life row for 23 years. Uh, Probably a sentence of life without parole. I never ask. And I never asked what they did. I just talked to them and I said, I'm, when I talked to people on death row. They say they need to develop a sense of humor and patience. And he kind of nodded. And he said, I need hope. And I said, tell me about that. And he says, you, you're hoping things and you hope that one day you'll be out and you hope that this will get better. You hope that the, they'll listen to you. and." then one by one, they take your hope away. That was a really deep, painful thing for him to share. And we talked about the need to still get up. And he was ready. I, I didn't have to you know, rescue him from despair. He was gonna get up the next day. He was gonna find a new thing to hope in. And I truly believe that. Uh, you, some of the strongest people I've ever met are people in prison. They know to survive means patience and dogged determinism, that you will not fail. They will not beat you down. You're gonna remember who you are. And it's hard to do, 23 years. Men swear by someone, oh, by the way, there's no one greater than God, so he swore by himself. Whole thing of Hebrews. Nobody's bigger than God, and Jesus is God, and what God looks like, acts like, sounds like, So everything about this is to elevate the Christ. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Dun, dun, dun. This is very weighty stuff. God elevated the argument by swearing by himself. He confirmed it. And it is impossible for God to lie. You know, sometimes when we say God is omnipotent, people will say, so he can do anything? And people fall for that. And they'll say, yeah, he can do anything. Well, can he make a a rock so big he can't lift it? You know, silly little things like this. Well, the answer really is no, God can't do everything. God cannot be unrighteous he cannot be unjust, he cannot be unloving, and he cannot be unmerciful, because that's his character. And if he were ever to move outside that character, he would no longer be God, because unlike us, who are many-layered and multifaceted, God is pure love, and he cannot lie because lies are destructive. So he said, it's just, we have hope, because he cannot lie. That's a a very cool thing, isn't it? Then it says we have an anchor for the soul. Talking of old hymns, did you ever sing we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the bellows roll? You ever talked about that for a bit? If you're not familiar much with the sea and with boats, you might think that when you toss the anchor down, you don't move. Oh, you do. You can swing about on that anchor. You can drag the anchor a little bit, but this anchor's not gonna drag. When a storm comes, you're still gonna bob up and down and swing sideways like crazy. But we stay anchored. In fact, if a storm's coming, you generally will throw out three lines, if at all possible. If you're at sea, that's not possible. Because that will support you, but you don't tighten the lines. If you tighten it, you'll break. You let it loose so you will still have a very uncomfortable time. Why am I all saying this about boats? Because anchored to God gives us hope, but that does not protect us against being uncomfortable in grave danger, even fearful times. But what it does is it says we know where we are anchored. We know who holds our future. So the storms will still be there, and they'll be pretty rough. But we survive, maybe not even physically, but we survive because a giver of eternal life is our hope. And then the writer begins the big, really thematic burst. Chapter one was really up there for this, but now he's gonna make an argument because there were a lot of people that were saying, Jesus doesn't qualify. Jesus can't be the Messiah; he's from the wrong tribe. It's the you know, family of David. We can see that. We see the genealogies, uh, both of them, um, and we see how that works. But um, wrong tribe doesn't; he's not qualified. And if you if you want to, you can go online and and read rabbis, Orthodox rabbis, teaching you. You know, here's a list of the reasons why Jesus was not the Messiah. Now, obviously. I've, I've looked at those arguments, and I believe there are answers to all of them. But there are a lot of people that still, especially here, when this was written, massive amounts of Jews, that was still a, a huge stumbling block, it was he's not the right guy, not from the right family. He's not a Levite, he doesn't come through these lines. So now Jesus has entered The inner inner sanctuary behind the curtain, well, I think we all know that the temple and the tabernacle before it had a curtained off uh, area called the Holy of Holies. It could only be entered once a year by the high priest. By the way, that thing about tying a rope to his foot so that if he died in there, they could drag him out. Complete myth made up in the medieval years. and that this is where the Mercy Seat formed on top of the Ark of the Covenant was. We all know that story. But most of us also know, if we've read our Bibles and we've gone to enough Easter resurrection sermons, is that when Jesus was dying on the cross, most people were gathering at the temple because it was the uh, the High Holy Day coming. And at a certain time, the setting sun would would go through the opening of the temple. And strike the curtain for the Holy of Holies, and people would do this great shout. Well, when Jesus died, that curtain was ripped by unseen hands. Everybody's looking at the curtain. You might think, why aren't they looking at the crucified Jesus? Because crucifixions were not unusual. But this was an event. You came to see this. This is something you come from far away to witness. The sunshine hits, uh, the setting sun hits that big curtain, and it's ripped by unseen hands. God rips open the inner sanctuary, and then he turns out the lights. It goes dark, and Jesus dies. Jesus has entered the sanctuary. Now, what happens? Now, because he did that, he is ordained a priest. But he's not from Levi. No. Because God doesn't only have the tribe of Levi. He has priests elsewhere. Now, for most Jews at that point, they'd be going, no, 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 no. And again, this is Jews in this time, in this culture. And they would have been absolutely right because the Bible is very, very plain on where you're to get your priest. Except for a strange visitor, a strange visitor wrapped in mystery named Melchizedek. Ooh, let's learn more about him. And we will next week. But we're 29 minutes in and gaining. Thank you so much for, for listening, for watching. Send us uh, your questions, comments, whatever you need at info at rsafeharbor.com. And if you can give, that would be brilliant. You can see how on our website, oursafeharbor.com. In the meantime, you have a blessed week. I look forward, I cannot wait to talk about Melchizedek. Cheers.